forget the intro and just take it away. The gentro. <laughs> Uh, welcome everyone to this episode of false bottom girls and we are uh rachel and jen and here to talk to you (laughs) she's jen she's rachel specifically generally (laughs) gentle should we just be those people that just combine our name rachifer that's like Jen with R in the middle with fur, like Jennifer. Yeah, Rachel Fur. Oh, Rachel Fur. I was thinking, uh, yeah, but you're Jen. You're not Jennifer. I mean, you're Jennifer, but people call you Jen. <laughs> I know. Genital. Genital. It sounds like genitals. Sorry, everybody. Sorry to subject you to that just a little side note of ours. Welcome to the most professional, <laughs> most polished most prepared podcast you I will like, listen to i this like totally week. forgot we were recording too i was just like oh let's just talk about what we do if we <laughs> combine our names weirdo i'm the weirdo well All you right. know what we're going to be doing over the next couple of episodes is talking about what happens when we combine tastes to make beer uh because if you had a beer with zero hops in it it wouldn't be a beer first of all uh but it would be like in way way too sweet like undrinkably sweet why we're talking about bitterness and sweetness is that when it comes to beer those two balance each other out and they balance each other out in varying degrees but malt and hops are going to be present in each one no matter what to varying degrees Uh, so for our next episode we will be talking about sweetness and sugars but it's always important to remember that may think that you don't like hoppy beers or bitter beers, but really what we're talking about, what you're talking about is, and I don't mean to gensplain to you, uh, (laughs) but what you're talking about is perceived bitterness rather than IBUs. And like Rachel Mm -hmm. said, IBUs don't tell you the entire story. So we will, we'll begin at the beginning with talking through taste a little bit. So when we talk about taste and it's important to distinguish taste from flavor and aroma a lot of times people put when you say something tastes like something what you're really talking about is flavor and what you're really really talking about is aroma and the flavor is generally used to uh, particularly in the sensory world flavor is the concept that embraces both aroma and taste Uh, but when we're talking about taste Today, specifically, we're talking about our five generally accepted tastes. So that's sweet, salty, acidic, uh, bitter, and umami. Specifically, specifically, we're talking about bitterness because bitterness is probably one of my favorite things to talk about when it comes to uh, when it comes to how we perceive things because it's really pretty fascinating. But some other tastes that we're are kind of on the horizon of being recognized as a taste are metallic, carbonation, fat, calcium. So a good way to distinguish between taste and flavor is when you're tasting a beer or really tasting anything, and I know we've talked about this before, is plugging your nose and Mm -hmm. taking a, a drink of something or a bite of something with your nose plugged and what those physical sensations are on your palate or taste. So if something is bitter, 
you will feel that. Uh, something sweet, you'll be able to feel that as well or be able to perceive it. It's the same way with capsaicin, um, actually, because things like capsaicin are a different pathway. Capsaicin is a pain receptor. Um, but one real dumb day, I decided to be like, oh, I wonder if I have my nose plugged if things, if like hot sauce is still hot. And <laughs> yeah, like, of, of course it is. That's a yeah. pain receptor. Uh, that, Would you think that doesn't that's go more? Away. It's definitely flavor for sure. Like a hot sauce, it will provide flavor. It's almost kind of like contributes to a mouthfeel sensation because of it's like, I'm just like thinking in my mind, not right. Right. Well, and that's what I'm fact. saying is that yeah. uh, capsaicin, that capsaicin heat yeah. is a pain response. Yeah. So it's not actually like, a, I don't believe it's like it goes through your trigeminal nerve, which is what your tastes do. Gotcha. So that is a pain receptor in your mouth. And so that capsaicin, well, not just in your mouth, but that's a pain reaction that you're having. So yeah, definitely. If I taste hot sauce and my nose is plugged, I'm going to feel that heat. And then if I unplug my nose and get the aroma, that's where the flavor is coming from. Yeah. Uh, But we are going down a very weird. That orthonasal. Well, the retronasal. Retronasal. Yeah. Excuse me. That's okay. I have uh, to re- refresh my other podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. When, we are de- jumping into a different. Right. Maybe world, we'll do yeah. aroma at a different time because I, I, it's one of those things for me that is just fascinating. I have so like, I just have tons of books on like how we taste, how we perceive aroma, all of that. So I, I'll try to keep it restrained today. But one of the things about taste also is that they're genetic. And we will talk about in just a second for a couple of minutes, we'll talk about tasters and non-tasters, but when we're talking about genetic taste perceptions, they, you know, these were developed to boost our odds of survival. There's a lot of stuff that still goes on within, you know, the way we perceive food, um, enjoyment, all of that, that is largely in our lizard brain. And technology kind of outpaced what our brain evolutionarily can keep up with. I will talk about that a little bit more too in our sweetness episode, because that's why everything has so much sugar in it is because, you know, evolutionarily, if something Mm -hmm. was sweet, it meant that it had a lot of nutritive value. So it was ripe fruit. Uh, But then we figured out how to like what sugar was basically yeah. and, start, and started adding sugar to everything. Uh, particularly if you're in the United States, you, I forget how many teaspoons it is of sugar that you eat every day without actually having a teaspoon and a sack of sugar. Um, it's mm-hmm. just in everything that we eat, but bitterness is really interesting because it, it is genetic being able to taste certain kinds of bitterness is genetic, but it's also an acquired taste. So think about things like coffee, beer, mm-hmm. broccoli. Those are all things that at one point in our lives, we may not have liked because it was too bitter. And now we do. And I remember that. And Rachel, I think you were probably the same way that, you know, going from like Bud Light mm-hmm. or a wheat beer mm-hmm. to an IPA because American craft very much grew up around IPA. And, um, I have a couple, as we continue talking through bitterness, I have a couple of, um, theories on that, that are just theories. They're not science. Uh, but you know, that particularly thinking back like 10, 12 years ago, the American craft scene was just a race to make the most bitter beer. 
So that's why yeah. a lot of people don't think they like bitter beers because 10 years ago, they tried an IPA that was overly bitter. But I know the first time I tried an IPA, I was like, oh, this is so bitter. And yeah. now I don't mind bitterness. Yeah. Well, your palate, not you've, I mean, acquired, the, you've, you've gotten used to it. The beers have evolved and you've gotten used to it. Right. Both things. Yeah, for sure. And I've right. noticed that with myself, like over the years, like when I first got into like, let's in my early days, let's at the beer bar I worked out, you're always getting new beers, right? I remember Bell's, um, must have been Hop Slam. This is like, you know, the, I don't know how long Bell's Hop Slam has actually been out, but it wasn't like, you know, there's four craft beer places in Richmond at the time, like two of them were Capital House. So like, that was like really fun for all the, oh, oh like this is delicious. It's like, oh yeah. my God, so good. Oh, it's rare, it's delicious. We loved it. And now over the years, I'm just like, yeah. Eh, bell tops and it's good it's fine but like it's hyped up now it's, it tastes different to me but also my palate has evolved so does right. it taste different or is it my palate it's probably right. both <laughs> right exactly yeah. yeah and oh man i remember like going to some place because they had a cask of hop slam and the same way us being like it's hop slam time which now yeah. looking back it's also like yeah it was i think it was more of like a scarcity thing and yeah so um I don't want to say the term hype slam because I know so many just douchey beer bros would say that even a few years yeah. ago, uh, but it was very much good marketing. You know, yeah. Bell's does a great job. We were just talking about Oberon Day oh, yeah. in our, uh, in our styles episode. So anyway, yes, I agree with you. And I um, had last night for a blind tasting, I was doing had a Dale's pale ale, mm -hmm. uh, which is super bitter, like. I am surprised that this is still considered a pale ale, but Tom and I had a whole discussion about like the first time he tried Dale's pale ale and was just like, oh, oh, it's so bitter. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, now you don't think anything about it. Like sometimes I'm in the mood for a bitter, yeah, like yeah. bitter forward beer. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things I love so much about bitterness specifically as a taste is so it is acquired, but it's also one of the most complex. So when we were talking a couple of minutes ago about sweetness, we have three genes. So three receptors that detect sweetness uh, compared to there are at least 25 types of bitter receptors that we have. And everybody has, you know, we all have, I forget how many receptors in our, you know, in our body basically, because you can sense bitterness in other places besides just your mouth. But, you know, we all, we all have like the same group of things, but just different ones are turned on in different combinations for people. Uh, that's also kind of why, if you're not kind of, that's also why if you love cilantro and like, I, let's say I love cilantro and Rachel's like, no, it's so it's because we mm -hmm. have different genes turned on, but with bitter receptors, so I just mentioned, they're found all over the body. So it's not just in your mouth. You also have bitter receptors in your pancreas, in your digest digestive scraps, uh, tract, uh, your liver, your brain. Um, if you have testicles, you have bitter receptors, uh, bitter receptors in your testicles. <laughs> you also have bitter receptors I in just, your rectum. Everybody okay. does. I just try to figure out like how your testicles comes how, like, how do the receptors in the testicles work? Does it come in contact with a bitter something you've eaten? 
one of the reasons we have, or the main reasons we have so many different kinds of bitter receptors is because nature is always trying to kill us and nature has always been trying to kill us. Right. (laughs) So there, it is filled with many different kinds of poison and most of them, because we evolved to, if something tasted bad, it was probably poisonous. It was probably bitter. So nature is filled with all different kinds of poisons. And that's why we need several different types of receptors and several, several different areas of the body that can detect bit potential poison. So if you're thinking about areas of your body, so your body has a lot of different ways to one sense that it's been poisoned and two figure out the quickest way to get it out of your body. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that makes sense because that's where, okay. Thank yes. you. Full, yep. tra- full circle. Yes. Hey, I, I'm, I just, I, I find it very fascinating. I do. Right. It is. It is. It is it's- fair. But once you like talk about well, the, the brain is also just uh, the human body in general, like so fascinating, like, like not in a sense that I want to open it up, but just how it works. And like, so it makes sense. It makes sense that this is right. Once you hear yeah. like the evolution behind it is have yeah. I been poisoned? How do I get rid of, rid it? of it? We there's all sorts of different ways that we can be poisoned. Most yeah. of them are going to be bitter. Uh, so the last couple of things that I'll talk about just with bitterness specifically. Um, And this is one thing that I really love and I love to figure out about people. And Rachel, I can't wait to figure it out about you. But when it comes to bitterness, there are what's known as non-tasters and tasters. Oh yeah. So a non-taster, if you're a non-taster, it doesn't mean that you're blind to bitterness. You can still taste bitterness, but uh, tasters versus non-tasters is like seen in like regular color versus seen in pastel. Yeah. Right. So if you're a non-taster, you can still perceive bitterness. It just takes an increased level of bitterness to be able yeah. to perceive it. If you're a non-taster, you also um, are probably more likely to like things like spicy foods, bitter things, because it takes more bitterness Makes sense for you to be able to taste it. Uh, and non-tasters are also less sensitive to things like diacetyl. So if you're doing a sensory program, it's, it can be really helpful to know who in your, among your sensory panelists are tasters and non-tasters, because if you have somebody who's a non-taster, they're going to be less sensitive to something like diacetyl. So they may come in and do your panel and say, yep, no diacetyl here. Everything's great. And, you know, you could have a taster come in and be like, whoa, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. there's diacetyl in this. It's a. Uh- is it diacetyl example or is that specific to diacetyl? What do you mean? Like, uh, is this a rule of thumb for all? Yes. Flavors? Okay. Yes. If gotcha. you're a non-taster, you're less sensitive to things like diacetyl. Um, and then if you're a taster, of course, that means that you are more sensitive to yeah. certain bitter compounds and perceived bitterness. And that's why, um, you know, if you're a taster, something that's mildly bitter is going to taste intensely bitter to you. Whereas somebody who's a non-taster is going to be like, why are you such a baby? This is not bitter at all, or it's just a little bit bitter. Pretty sure I'm a baby. And (laughs) tasters are also more sensitive to sour, sweet, salty tastes. So if you avoid foods like peppers, wasabi, ginger, if all of those are too powerful, there's a good chance that you're going to be a taster. Yeah. And so the way that you can do that, the way you can do that is even on Amazon, you can order what's known as prop paper or probe paper. And they're just little bitty test strips. And it's like maybe $7. I have given probe paper to 
I think almost everyone I know. Uh, when I was doing the sensory <laughs> panel, I gave that to all of the panelists to nice. one as a way to be like, here's something fun. Here's also this, this is part of learning about bitterness, but it's also helpful for me as a sensory scientist to know yeah. who is a taster and who isn't. Uh, two chemists who were working in a lab, and at the time they were using something that's known as PTC. Uh, I don't remember the entire thing. PTC after this used to be what they would use to taste to tell if somebody was a a bitter taster or not. Now they use probe paper. But uh, this happened at DuPont in 1930. There were two chemists. Uh, One of them was pouring PTC into a container and kind of like fumbled it. And it sent like a puff of this compound into the air. And the other chemist was like, uh, oh my God, it's so bitter. Uh." And the chemist who had like accidentally, you know, fumbled with it, didn't taste anything at all. And he's like, what's your problem? And so that's how they realized that, you know, Mm -hmm. this, this accidental experiment uh, between the two chemists, like, Hey, you think that this tastes really bitter. And, you know, he said, taste it again. And the same reaction, like, Oh my God, this is so bitter. But then when the first chemist tasted it, he didn't get any bitterness at all. So they started having more people come in and taste and ask who could taste the compound and who couldn't. Uh, And that's how they were figuring out like, okay, this compound is bitter and some people can taste it, some can't. So yeah, some random facts about tasters and non-tasters. Women are more likely to be tasters than men. Uh, About one third of Caucasians are tasters. So I, you know, in general terms, most white people aren't tasters. Uh, If you are a taster, you're less likely to develop a sinus infection than a non-taster. So, and and I've talked about this before in one of the education classes that I did when I was at Pilot in Northeast Britain. So where, you know, a lot of like the bitter styles developed, uh, nearly a third of the population are non-tasters. And so that's, that's one way to tie it in with beer also is thinking through, you know, areas of the world with beers that developed, even looking at cuisine that's developed and, you know, what kinds of beer styles also developed if every, you know, not if everybody, but if a good portion of people there are non-tasters, then, you know, maybe that's why there's more bitter beer. And same thing as like in India, more than half of the population is a non-taster. So if you think about Indian food, it's very bold, very bright, lots of heat. Yeah. And, you know, more than half of the population there are non-tasters. So all of those flavors take, and I don't want to say normal, but their baseline for what is spicy or bitter is much higher than Mm -hmm. somebody like, you know, like you and I, Rachel, um, I know that I am a taster. Yeah. I know that uh, Tom, my husband, is a non-taster. And once we figured that out, like it was like, yeah, that makes sense. We have so many hot sauces yeah. because that's like his his threshold for it is actually, I think mine's a little bit higher, but I don't like to put it on food. I just like to flex that I can just like taste to all the take, hot sauces. Just take it down. Yes. But ah, kind of your- knowing knowing all of this leads my me to my very unscientific conclusion that when we think about men being more likely to be non-tasters, most Caucasians being non-tasters, 
who was developing the beer industry, right? Who drove craft beer, mm-hmm. you know, it's men, men, primarily <laughs> white men. Yeah. And we were just talking about, you know, when craft took off, it very much developed Oh yeah, around IPAs. And it was a race to see who could create the most bitter beer. So you're already starting with people who may probably have a much higher threshold for bitterness. And so, you know, creating something um, without, without knowing it, but, you know, creating something that they're genetically predisposed to like more. Um, So, you know, that's one thing when I've talked with a lot of people who are not white men who, you know, tried beer 10 years ago when it was super bitter. And if you're a taster, you're already more sensitive to that. And so you think that beer is not for you you know, craft beer isn't for you because it's too bitter. Uh, So knowing that, you know, having that kind of information, being armed with that kind of information, I think could potentially be very powerful to understand and kind of win people back to craft is, you know, if you're a taster, you know, like make beer for tasters, not for (laughs) non-tasters. So uh, thank you for indulging me in about bitterness because I find it fascinating. No, it's great. And it's perfect lead into talking about um, IBUs because the rating for IBU, this system was agreed to like in 1967 by a group of white men. Right. <laughs> also during a time where beers were not heavily hopped, they were, we were making lagers, pilsners, um, hopping. There was not a lot of dry hopping. There was definitely no over hopping, not until probably like the nineties. We're talking about like, so this also like like the ibu scale was also based on the use of um like baled hops and not pellet forms too Mm -hmm. um and baled hops were also during that time most likely stored with little temperature control and probably by the time they were used they were pretty much spoiled with what we would consider oxidized compounds in today's standards so we're talking about a scale that is using, <laughs> it's very outdated. We're, we right. brew really big beers now. We use lots of extracts and uh, hop extracts and pellets and um, lots of dry hopping. The, you know, during when this hopping scale was created in the 60s, most beer didn't exceed 6% and most beer wasn't over 50 IBUs. Right. Um, and right. so this is like, a compromise between brewing scientists on both sides of the pond, if you will, in America and in Europe, Germany, um, doing research about hops. So um, it's really interesting because it's almost like, well, to me, I'm just like, okay, well, how does like, it's almost like it just doesn't, almost doesn't even matter. So like the way you really determine the IBUs is done in a lab, right? But this formula that we all use as homer brewers, like I don't have a lab here at Pilot Brewing. I mean, I don't have a way to do the ultraviolet light screening over a sample of acidified wort. <laughs> like, right. Um, so bigger breweries do. And some bigger breweries might actually sit, you know, view their wort under microscope and determine the actual IBU from a lab point, um, that can get a little messy when you have a ton of dry hopping or late hops, or you just have like a bunch of particulates or hop oils and resins. 
um, it can be kind of hard to determine what's contributing to IBUs and what's not when you're seeing in, in that sample. But so anyway, so this, you know, formula is created as, as uh, uh, what's the right word I'm looking for as a uh, compromise, if you will, for us to be able to like, okay, I can take the alpha acid number of these hops and put it into a formula on what I'm doing with the beer and make this uh, estimate. The problem with that, one of the problems with that is that a lot of people, this number is going to also be determined by your utilization rate of your hops from your boil kettle. And that is going to be, uh, most people don't know how to figure that out uh, or it's miscalculated and it's hardly ever calibrated. So it's one of the reasons why people are like, oh, you have your, uh, could you make a hop drop here? And I'm like, well, one, no, because I'm not Noda and it's not called hop drop. But like two, like my, I can't, I don't really know, like, I don't know how to bring over their hop utilization rate to calibrate it to my system. I'm sure right. someone does, but like, that's why I'm just saying like it, that my point is with this formula with IBUs, it's not perfect, but it's something we use as a brewery to give a number. Um, so, right. it, and if you know, if you're trained a little bit in brewing, the scale for IBU technically is zero to a hundred. Um, some beers are out there that's marketed as a hundred plus IBUs. I can't remember what the exact number is, but there is a certain amount of IBUs that you really can't taste above. Right. Humans anyways. have a threshold of yeah. bitterness that they can taste. And, and it's kind of comparable to like Fahrenheit system. Like, you know, like 32 degrees is freezing and 212 is boiling like that means something to you like that that gives like if you okay i know it's 40 degrees outside versus 80 degrees that's gonna you know tell you how to dress but like one person's 40 degrees might feel very different to another person if that that's makes a sense. really really good comparison i Thank like you. that a lot Thank i was you. just talking to somebody the other day about whether like what 50 degrees felt like in Chicago was a summer day is what 50 degrees feels like oh. in Atlanta is like, we're in the dead of winter and I spring, might die spring versus fall. Like when right. it turn when it goes to fall time and it's like starting to get cold, cold outside, you're like, whatever, still short weather. It's all good. And then springtime is 50 degrees. You're like in a coat. <laughs> right. Exactly. No, that's a really good comparison. Um, but let's talk a little bit when we're talking about IBUs, yeah. let's back up a little bit. And I think the missing piece we have here is hops and where the bitterness comes from in hops. So bitterness can yes. come from a couple of places within the beer, but overwhelmingly it's going to come from the hops. So yes. for the bittering components of hops, brewers are going to look at what the total resins are. So you can break resins down into hard and soft. That's gets kind of granular when we're doing that for purposes of our discussion. Really, we're talking about, Rachel already referred or uh, talked about the alpha acids and then to a lesser extent, the beta acids. So your alpha acids are going to be what provides the bulk of that bittering that Rachel's yes. talking about. That's really going to provide the bulk of what you're measuring in IBUs, uh, well, almost because yeah. so our alpha acids, we have three specific ones. Those are humulone, cohumulone, and adhumulone. Uh, during the warp boil that Rachel was just talking about the with the, the hop utilization, the alpha acids go undergo what's known as isomerization. 
And I can tell you when I was learning, first learning about beer, isomerization was such a difficult word to say. Like I had to, I had to sound it out like a second grader trying to spell couch. Like I was like, isomerization. And I had to do that for a while. And now I can just be like isomerization. It's like not a big deal. Um, But those alpha acids undergo isomerization to create the bitterness is going to be measured in the IBUs. So after it's undergone, those alpha acids have undergone isomerization. They're then known as iso alpha acids. Yeah. Isomerized alpha acids. Yes. So then it's isohumulone, isocohumulone, isoadhumulone. And the, those production of the bittering iso alpha acids that we've created during the boil are generally proportional to the total alpha acids in the hops. So if, you know, you're wanting to get like 10% uh, alpha acid, like you're going to use 10% alpha acid hops, generally you're going to end up with 10% iso alpha acids after your boil. Um, So yeah, so when we're talking about hop bitterness and measuring IBUs, that's where most of the hop bitterness is going to be coming from is those alpha acids that are then going to be isomerized into isoalpha acids. Uh, Beta acids will undergo isomerization, but they don't really contribute anything in terms of bitterness because they're, they're not very water soluble. They're poorly soluble in wort. Yeah. So beta acids like an oxidized bitter, like from when it kind of oxidizes in the packaged beer breaks down, Mm -hmm. it will contribute bitterness from that, like not in a pleasant way. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Not in a IBU way. Well, maybe. Right. Right. So most of the time, and that's also the alpha acid content is typically when you hear about bittering hops, aroma or flavor hops, the higher the alpha acid is, is technically, or like I generally, I shouldn't say technically, generally the, you're going to use the high alpha acid hops for your bittering because you want to get that bitterness. Um, But generally not always something like a noble hop will have like 5% alpha acid, which in like in the United States, looking at American hops, at US hops, like the alpha acids will be like 19%, right? They're getting crazy pants, but the, in other areas, like with the German noble hops, 5% alpha acid is going to give you that level of bitterness you need for something like a German Pilsner. Yeah. So like, I also, like she was saying, alpha acids are the most contributor for IBUs. The resins do like the hard versus soft resin, just to touch on that. The hard resin doesn't like contribute much to beer flavor, but soft resin will give beer more bitterness. It's, um, like uh, has it's divided into alpha and beta fractions and whereas your alpha fractions or your beta fractions and have some influence on the beer flavor uh most the beta mostly the alpha acids are going to or the alpha fractions are what's going to contribute to the ibus as well but it's a smaller proportion than alpha acids and then same with like um a uh humulones you know other minor hop acids that can have a major impact on uh, bitterness and like heavily dropped high dry hopped beers. So I was reading like how um, these are formed by the oxidation of alpha acids. So I was reading how like 
there were some experiments done and how more heavily dry hopped beers actually reduces the amount of acids that goes into the final product, lowering the IBU. Um, just to give you an example of some numbers, like Hopsteiner conducted an experiment where they comparing a low IBU beer to a high IBU beer. And what they did was that they increasingly dry hopped the beer from zero to point to a half to one to two pounds per barrel. So they did four different samples, um, one no dropped all the way up to two pounds per barrel. And what they got was that they progressively lowered the isomerized alpha acid components um, going from 48 to 39 to 35 to 30. So 48 IBUs being measured out of a beer with zero dry hopping all the way down to 30 being measured with a beer with two pounds per barrel of dry hopping. Okay. Which in the style of New England IPA that I hate so much makes sense, right? Because it's supposed to be low bitterness, like high hop flavor, high hop aroma. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that they purposely do a low bittering charge, but I bet this also contributes to that. Lower. Yeah, that's really interesting. That makes a lot of sense. I yeah. mean, I didn't, I didn't know that about the dry hopping, but that, yeah, most of what, so again, and I think we talked about this when we were talking with the hopnology guys about me saying that most New England IPAs are like how the Bluth family doesn't know what a chicken looks like. So they're like bad imitations, of bad <laughs> imitations or mediocre imitations of mediocre mm -hmm. imitations. Uh, I can see how, and this is me with no, no actual proof or knowledge of the exact history behind every New England IPA. So you don't need to come for me on that, but um, not using a lot of bittering hops, I can see being the reverse engineering of brewers who don't really understand the science of the hopping and like the dry hopping, like you were just talking about um, saying, okay, so it's not very bitter. So I don't add a lot of bittering hops. Yeah. Other than like, if you see something like uh, something like Hetty Topper that has a significant amount of bitterness. It's not a bitter bomb, mm -hmm. but it was, you know, it started with a pretty regular level of bitterness for an American IPA. It just finished in a different mm -hmm. way. So I can definitely see brewers who don't understand that biochemistry happening being like, okay, less bitterness means I don't use as many bittering hops. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you, that's one way to get it. Yeah. But again, you know, it's like, coke, 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 coke. that's not what a chicken looks like, but yeah. that's what Joe Blue thinks a chicken looks like. And then there's other things that contribute to bitterness that don't have anything to do with hops. Yes. Like uh, dark malt spices. Um, another experiment that I read about with Boston Beer Company, they uh, made a base beer and with hops calculated to contribute to 20 IBUs. And like, then they separated the, they had the control and then they added some different spices to different um, vats, if you will. One being coriander, one being cocoa nibs, one being cinnamon. I think they did some lemon peel, something else, uh, coffee. But they found like the control measured at 26 IBUs. So remember, they calculated from their beer program, whatever. Right. And it's Boston Beer companies. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. actual lab equipment. Yeah. So some, some brewer was like, here's my recipe. It's going to be 20 IBUs. Then they, then they brew the beer. They measured the actual IBUs as 26, the control. Then the samples, they measured the samples. So the one with coriander actually measured at 27 IBUs. 
The one with cocoa nibs measured at 28 and the one at cinnamon measured at 80. Whoa. Really? Yeah. But, I mean, that, th- yeah, it, that makes sense. Yeah. And then, and then the sensory of it was all uh, kind of across the board. So like nine out of 12 people, we're talking about trained panelists too. Right. Uh, with the cinnamon sample, nine out of 12 said that the cinnamon was more bitter and, but zero found it to be less bitter. So some people just thought it was the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be a big difference between tasters and non-tasters right there. Yeah, there you go. Full circle, baby. Science. You know, so it's it's really interesting to see, you know, how there's so many things that contribute to bitterness. So when you are like looking at the beer menu and an American IPA says IBUs is 60 and a stout says IBUs is 60, don't worry about it. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Don't worry about and it. And the- Just we- try out. We touched on the perceived bitterness, but yeah, like Rachel said, other, there's a lot of things that will determine the perceived bitterness and that's going to vary from person to person. So we just learned that some people taste bitterness more so than others, but yeah, like roast character, like you said, um, carbonation. Yeah. Um, water chemistry, like if you make your beer very sulfitic, like that's going to enhance hot bitterness. That's very Uh, true. Residual sugar. So same thing. If we're talking about something like a stout or maybe something with lactose in it, you could have the exact same IBUs, but if there's residual sugar, that bitterness is going to seem like it's less. So yeah, it's a really, it's bitterness is a really fascinating topic. And if you, I can't imagine that you would be listening to this podcast for this long. Maybe if you started here, hello, welcome. This is false bottom girls, but (laughs) If you think that you don't like beer because the beer you tried a while ago was too bitter, try different beers now. There, you know, there's there's a ton of different options, oh, and yeah. luckily, not all breweries are only making six different versions of kind of crappy IPAs. So you can find a beer style that you like, and you can learn about what flavors you like. And if you don't like bitterness, that's fine. Like Rachel said at the beginning you may, there's going to be bitterness in every beer to varying levels. So you can let your bartender know. And if you have a good bartender, they'll be able to guide you to different styles on the Mm -hmm. menu that are going to be, you know, lower perceived bitterness for you. So just remember, and I, I get irritated when I see places that list IBUs on the menu because they really don't matter. They don't matter. The IBUs are, have, are and have always been meant to be a laboratory measure. It is meaningless to a customer. So yeah. if you're somebody who looks at IBUs as an indication of what kind of beer you might like or might not like, stop doing that. And instead read, and I'm not saying that in a bad way at all. Yeah. Read the description. Yeah. yeah. Read the description and determine whether that sounds like something you would like and don't be put off by the IBUs, whether it's too high or too low for you, because the IBUs are pretty meaningless for us as consumers. And, you know, on a, on a flip note to that, I, my ESB extra special bitter is like one of the slowest tap removers because people see the word bitter and um, get turned off. So this one that we have coming up here soon, we're marketing as in English paleo. because. <laughs> The word bitter turns people off and right. it's not, it's not a bitter beer. It's balanced. It is bitter for, uh, the style and for English beers, if you will, but it's right. not like overly bitter, but right. I just think that's exactly. a good example of a style. So if you are disregarding the IBUs, 
don't get turned off by the word bitter either. Yes. You don't know how bitter. <laughs> yes. And that's, again, that's one of those opportunities that is great to talk to your bartender, talk to the brewer oh, yeah. and ask, ask about it or ask for, for sure. a sample. Unless you have anything else to add. No, I think this is the bitter end, Rachel. Mm, I see what you did there. Uh, uh, so before we wrap up, uh, we would like to say thank you to all of our False Bottom Girls patrons. If you would like to learn more about how you can additionally support us, uh, you can head over to our Patreon and uh, you can also find that link on falsebottomgirls.com. Uh, we have three different levels, but we would like to thank Lainey, Maggie, Mary, Dave, Sandra, Mike, Angelica, Scott, Stephen, and Stacy. Thank you all very much for being patrons and thank you everyone for listening and for your continued support and enthusiasm for us doing this. And uh, you can reach out to us on Instagram and Facebook at False Bottom Girls. You can email us at falsebottomgirls at gmail.com. And thank you everyone for listening. Thank you. This has been False Bottom Girls. And we make the brewing world go round. <laughs>